Hello, my name is Rebecca Kaufman, and welcome to this podcast produced by the International Monetary Fund. If there is a single word that has defined the economic crisis in Europe and the United States, it is debt. Debt has been all-consuming, drowning homeowners in mortgages, leaving cities bankrupt, and forcing countries to make public cuts even in the face of fierce opposition. How did we get to a point where debt threatened to reshape our economic and political world order? For an answer, I sat down with Philip Kogan, author of Paper Promises, Debt, Money, and the New World Order, and columnist for The Economist magazine. In his new book, Kogan writes that this is not the first time in history unsustainable debt levels have meant drastic changes for how the world does business. The thesis of the book is that history is a battle between creditors and debtors, and the battleground is the nature of money. So over time, creditors have insisted on forms of sound money, whether the money is linked to precious metal like gold, or whether currencies are fixed in rates against each other. And debtors have tended to want the uh, value of money to be flexible, so more money to be created at times of crisis or exchange rates to move, float on the markets um, so that they can devalue away their debts. And what's happened in history is we've had a series of periods in which debts have built up. There has been a crisis, the 1930s, the 1970s, and now. And as that crisis unfolded, the nature of the monetary system changed and a a new order came into place. And that new order tended to be set by the creditor nation. Philip Kogan, how do the levels of debt that we've accumulated right now compare to other periods of high debt? We have much higher levels of total debt relative to economic output GDP than we have before. There have been moments in history when governments have had higher ratios of debt to GDP uh, than they have now. But we haven't had debt right across the economy in the consumer sector, in the corporate sector, in the banking sector in the same way that we've had today. We're talking about most of the developed world things of 300 to 400 percent debt levels of GDP. And of course, we saw in Ireland and Iceland sort of seven to nine uh, times debt levels to GDP. So these are pretty much unprecedented in history, yes. There are sure to be implications for such high levels of debt. What will they be? Well, the reason the book is called Paper Promises is that debt, like paper money really, is a paper promise. And I could throw in also the promises governments have made to citizens in the form of benefits like pensions and health care. Not all these promises can be honoured. That's the implication of these very high debt levels. And so economic history going forward is all going to be about a battle to decide who gets the wrong end of the stick. So we will see taxpayers battling public sector workers, we'll see the young battling the old, the rich battling the poor, and some countries battling, not in a military sense, but um, arguing with other countries about how much debt they should pay off and how much should be forgiven. How does your thesis about debt levels relate to what went on in the housing market in the United States in recent years? We have to go back, really, to 1971. And in 1971, the last link between paper money and metal was removed when President Nixon got rid of the gold window. He removed the linking of the dollar to gold and ended the era of floating exchange rates. Since then, we've been in a unique era in history in which there's been no anchor to money at all. Now, during that period, there's been no constraint on the amount of credit that could be created. In previous systems, there was, because you had to control the value of money. So that money was generally used to buy assets and was lent against assets by the banking system. So we had a huge rise in debt level 
to GDP, huge surge in importance in the finance sector, a unprecedented rise in valuations in first the stock market, and then when the stock market collapsed in early 2000 and central banks cut interest rates, the speculative activity moved to the housing market in the US. And it moved there for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, it was almost the last thing to buy, to buy because um, there was an argument that house prices would never go down. And there's no surer way of creating a bubble than to argue that a price of an asset can never go down. And the second reason was that there was a need for safe assets which uh, with a attractive yield, which had been created because the Asian central banks had been buying treasury bonds and forcing down treasury bond yields. So suddenly investors were looking for something else to invest in and bonds linked to mortgage loans became that attractive factor. So that's really why the pressure built up in the housing market in the US. The housing crisis didn't stop in the US. It spread to Europe where it became the sovereign debt crisis. Why has Europe struggled to contain the crisis? The bargain in Europe has been that the northern European countries will lend the southern European countries money, provided that the southern European countries go for austerity programs. The problem with that bargain is that southern European economies have been in recession. Those recessions have got worse in the face of those austerity programs. So debt to GDP ratios have tended to go higher, not lower. And of course, this makes the problem look even worse. Now, there's a joke that we were sent at The Economist, which is uh, an Irishman, an Italian and a Greek go into a bar. Who pays for the drinks? And the answer is the German. In the end, the creditors will have to pay. So the Germans and the Northern Europeans have two choices. They can actually send money to Greece and Portugal, or they can lend money to Greece and Portugal that won't get paid back. Either way, it doesn't really make much difference. Uh, they won't get their money back. And eventually... The population will have to realise that in northern European countries. But we're really, in a, again, in a democracy, trying to sort out where the pain will fall. So how much can Greek voters suffer without revolting? How much will German voters suffer in terms of writing off debts without revolting? What are the long-term consequences of all this debt? The long-term consequence of the debt crisis, I think, is a remade order. So in the 1930s, the gold standard collapsed. And when politicians came to remake the system in the 1940s, what was called the Bretton Woods Agreement in 1944, they changed the parameters altogether. They abandoned the formal use of gold coins, which disappeared a bit after the First World War anyway, and they moved to fixed exchange rates against the dollar, with the dollar the only currency that was formally linked to gold. But that took 10 or so years to do. Then when Bretton Woods collapsed in the 1970s, they moved to a new system of floating exchange rates. We had an immediate inflationary problem in the 1970s, and we sort of got round to dealing with that problem by having strong central banks with a mandate to control inflation. And so we eventually worked out a system whereby consumer inflation was under control and creditors could have some confidence that their loans would not be inflated away. So the collapse of this system will again bring out a new order in the world. Britain set the terms of the original gold standard when it was the creditor nation of the world. America set the terms for Bretton Woods. So any new order that emerges will be set by China, which is the largest creditor nation. And that was Philip Kogan, author of the recently published Paper Promises, Debt, Money, and the New World Order, and columnist for The Economist magazine. To hear more podcasts, go to www.imf.org podcast.